0: I have made no secret about uh, my affinity towards the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I am a huge fan of all the the comic book stuff and and all the superheroes. But one of my favorite movies in the MCU is the movie Doctor Strange. Now, some people have critiqued the movie saying, well, it's just a a rehashing of the, the Tony Stark as Iron Man story arc, but... I would argue that it's different, and it differs in, in subtle yet significant ways. In case you don't know the story, Dr. Strange, Dr. Stephen Strange was a, a world-renowned neurosurgeon. He was able to do the impossible in the medical field. The, the movie even says that he w- was able to, to stitch back together the human spine. He would... With his photographic memory, he, he was able to, to bend the human body and science to his will to make the impossible possible. That was until he was involved in a serious car crash. In that crash, he survived, but his hands were were mangled. They were they were they were damaged beyond repair. And his hands were his livelihood. He could not do surgery without his hands. And so with his hands, his livelihood destroyed. The man hits rock bottom. He, he spends his entire fortune trying to just regain his hands so he can have the life that he always had for naught. In a last attempt, in a last ditch effort, he, he seeks healing through the mystic arts that somebody told him about at a place called Kamartaj. As any man of science, he was skeptical that, well, they, they couldn't do what is being claimed that they do and, until the ancient one showed him. The ancient one explained to him how it's it's not magic, as we would say, but it's it's. Science and, and drawing energy from, from other dimensions, and it goes into the explanation. But upon seeing what is truly possible, he becomes a willing student. He, he desires to learn, and he pours himself into study just as he had done in medical school. But he still struggles. He still can't make the, the, even the most basic of spells or, or programs to, to work. The mastery of these skills eludes him. It wasn't until he got an important piece of advice from the ancient one that things began to turn around. The ancient one told him as he was struggling to to do just the most basic, simple things, she told him, you cannot beat a river into submission. You have to surrender to its current and use its power as your own. And you see, I'd say this is the difference between Iron Man and Doctor Strange. Tony Stark as Iron Man, he was a a self-obsessed, egotistical millionaire, just like Doctor Strange. But Tony Stark, he, he saw that the weapons that his company was creating were, were doing harm and damage. And so he decided to take control of his company. He decided to, to alter his destiny, to, to change where he was going. But Dr. Strange couldn't do that. He had spent everything. He had used all of his power that he could to alter his destiny, and he couldn't. His success did not come through sheer willpower, but his success came through surrender. And I believe this is a very important lesson to learn in life. And it's the underlying lesson, or the underlying message, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We started looking at chapter 7 a little while ago, and... And early in that chapter, Paul is addressing questions from the church focusing upon sex and marriage. They had a question whether or not Christians should have sex or whether or not Christians should get married or or be married or, or whether or not Christians should remain married even if their spouse was not a Christian. And throughout all of those questions... Paul had one consistent message. Remain as you are. Are you married? Then remain married. Are you uncircumcised? Then remain uncircumcised. Are you a slave or are you free? Then remain that way. But if you can improve your lot in life, if you can improve your situation without sacrificing your Christian witness then by all means, do it. Last week, we started looking towards the end of chapter 7, and we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 25. And we, we went over it briefly. I kind of explained that Paul was going to touch on this subject and then kind of go on a small tangent and come back to it at the end. So if, you're not, if you don't remember, last week we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 25, And in that, Paul said, now about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I give you an opinion as one who by the Lord's mercy is faithful. And then he picks up the same thought in verse 36, saying if any man thinks he is acting inappropriately toward the virgin he is engaged to, if she is getting beyond the usual age for marriage and he feels he should marry, he can do what he wants. He is not sinning. They can get married. But he who stands firm in his heart, who is under no compulsion, but has control over his own will, and has decided in his heart to keep her as a fiancé, will do well. So then, he who marries his fiancé does well, but he who does not marry will do better. A wife is bound as long as her husband is living. But if her husband dies she is free to marry to be married to anyone she wants only in the lord but she is happier if she remains as she is in my opinion and i think that i also have the spirit of god now we read this and it makes some sense but it also it serves to highlight a problem that we have in our modern society as we're seeking to interpret Scripture. Because as we read this modern translation, it kind of glosses over some of the questions that have been wrestled with by scholars over the years with when we don't get to actually read the original Greek. If we look at, at verse 36, we read it in the Christian Standard Bible. And in the Christian Standard Bible, it said, "If any man thinks he is acting inappropriately toward the virgin he is engaged to," makes a lot of sense. It's talking about a young man engaged to a young woman, and you know, things are, there's there's that that tension. They're they're planning to get married, but they haven't come together yet, and there's that that tension. Of, of what should we do? How far should we go? Can we wait? If we read in another translation, the English Standard Version, a, a, a translation loved by, by scholars for its, its accuracy. The English Standard Version reads, If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed. This one leaves out the, the, even the mention of a virgin. But it still says the same thing, talking about a a young man being engaged to a young woman. They're they're betrothed. They're going to get married. But if we read it in the New English translation, if you hadn't heard of this translation, that's perfectly okay. Most most people don't read it. It is a very scholarly translation because it seeks to do a a literal word-for-word translation of the Greek. And in so doing, it becomes very difficult to read, and it doesn't always make a whole lot of sense, but it mirrors more accurately or more closely the words that that Paul actually wrote down on paper. And in the New English translation, this same verse says, if anyone thinks he is acting inappropriately toward his virgin, and this is where the confusion comes in. We can ascertain what the other translations are saying from this. We can see how they would come to this conclusion. But there are some questions. Who is being referred to when it says, Toward his virgin. This phrase by itself has been the, the source of debate among scholars because of its ambiguity. Now the virgin being referred to everyone agrees this is talking about the same unmarried girl. That's not in question. But who is he? Who is the, this man that is being referred to? Some scholars would look at this phrase, toward his virgin, and they would say, well, this guy is, is the father. That's who's being referred to. As we still kind of hold to today, Uh, a young girl is under the care of her father until she is married we may not like the the phrasing of it but it could be said that that this young girl belongs to her father that's why in a marriage ceremony it's custom that the father will give away the bride amplify that in a a society that's not so favorable towards women, and and we can see in this society that the father gets to decide for his daughter. The father gets to decide, in this passage then, if his daughter, his virgin, would get married or not. Now, it does seem a little odd to us for a, a father to refer to his daughter as his virgin because when he's getting married to his wife that could be his virgin as well and it it just it seems odd to us for a father to call his daughter his virgin and this was honestly it was uncommon to to use that phrasing even then it could mean that it could be understood that way but that's not how how it would typically have been understood. And so, many scholars will reject that interpretation, but then we will look to celibate marriages. Earlier in this chapter, the, the church asked, is it good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman? Note, they were not asking, should we not get married to a woman? There was no question about marriage in there at all. It was just about sexual relations. And Paul responded to them saying, if you need to exercise those desires, then get married. There could be a question in here. Was was this church trying to do celibate marriages? where, Where the husband and wife were married... They were engaged and they became married, but they never consummated that marriage. They they didn't come together in that way. Or they were married and then became Christians and then chose to, to abstain from sexual relations from that point forward. In such celibate marriages the husband and wife would live together, they would share their lives together, they would share a spiritual union, but they would forsake a physical union. Now, as we look through history, such marriages were extremely uncommon, and maybe it was Paul's words here that kind of stamped it out, or they maybe didn't really exist very much at all. But most likely, as we're looking at the the myriad of possibilities for for what Paul is trying to say here, the most likely understanding of this passage is the one that is assumed by most modern Bible translations. And this is talking about a young man and a young woman who are engaged to be married. And so Paul's advice So this young man and this young woman who are wondering, should we get married? Should we have sex? Should we we just remain as we are? Paul's advice to them is the same advice that he gave back at the beginning of chapter 7. When he told them, I'm telling those who are single and widows that it's good for them to stay single like me. This is the advice that he gave them. The same that he's been giving. Remain as you are. You don't need to change. You don't need to get married. But then he also finishes here the same way that he did right after verse 8. Saying, but if they can't control themselves, they should get married. Because it's better to marry than to burn with passion." This is the the same message that Paul has been repeating throughout chapter 7. Singleness is great. If you can remain that way, great. But sex is not bad as long as it's kept within the confines of a God-ordained marriage. And so if we were to look at chapter 7 we were to, to summarize one main key point that Paul is trying to get through, that would be Remain as you are. If you're uncircumcised, you don't need to become circumcised. If you are free, you don't need to become a slave. If you're married, you should stay married and fulfill your marital duties. If you are single, then you should stay single if you can handle it. And here, I believe, is a deeper lesson that Paul was trying to teach a struggling church. A deeper lesson that that we as a church today could still learn from. A lesson about self-discipline. Because Paul's message throughout all of this, all the talk about sex, Paul's Paul's teaching, Paul's lesson, what Paul's been trying to get through to people is self-discipline is good. It is better for you if you can discipline yourself. It's better for you if you can remain single. That's what Paul's been saying. It's better for you if you can discipline yourself and abstain from sex. Marriage is good if we read other other letters that Paul wrote. He makes it abundantly clear that that this marriage relationship mirrors that of of, of Christ and his church. Husband and wife. Marriage is good, but it will divide your attention. It will take your focus away from the things of God, and you will need to be focused on the things of this world. And due to the present distress, we should focus solely upon God. Now, you and I agree. I'm assuming that we all agree that self-discipline is a good thing. It's good if you can discipline yourselves. And as many times as Paul hammers home this idea of self-control, he just as often walks back from that idea. You should abstain from sex. You don't need to get married, but if you can't control yourself, then get married. But if he feels that he should get married, he can do what he wants. I think this is an important lesson that we need to learn. Because you and I, humans in general, we have a tendency to elevate those who subject themselves to a high level of self-discipline. We have, in just a short while, the Winter Olympics coming up. And in the Winter Olympics, what we have are a group of individuals who have pushed themselves to the limit, who have have disciplined their minds and their bodies to be able to do what others could not do. And we celebrate them. When we think of of the super spiritual people among us, we tend to think of, of priests and the like. People who have have voluntarily cut themselves off from their sexual desires. Those who have made a vow of of celibacy. Those who devote their lives to God in such way. And Paul would look at this devotion and he would say that it is good. That their their self-discipline, their self-control is a good thing but then we tend to take it one step farther. Not only do we choose to abstain from sexual relations, but, but others will, will choose to abstain from other modern conveniences. Monks and nuns who will seclude themselves. They will, will go away to, to live in a monastery, or they will, they will go away to live all by themselves in isolation eating only bread and water, sleeping on hard floors so that they can discipline themselves in order to get closer to God. And we look at these things and we see, wow, look at their self-discipline. This is being super spiritual, rejecting all earthly pleasure, subjecting ourselves to strict rules and obligations. That's not what Paul is telling us to do here. Self-discipline for the sake of of self-discipline. That's not how the the Christian life was supposed to be. Jesus, he didn't say, I'm going to, to make you conform. I'm going to make you do all these things. No, he said, I will, I've come so that they may have life and have it in abundance. Theologian William Barclay says, Christianity was never meant to abolish normal life. It was meant to glorify it. That's what we were just saying a couple weeks ago. The gift of God is not that we have a whole new life, But that god makes our old lives new and this is where we tend to stumble as christians because we know we all agree self-discipline is a good thing and if self-discipline is good well then it stands to reason that more self-discipline is better and so we bring upon ourselves we, we subject ourselves to a strict set of rules, a strict set of disciplines. And, and these rules and these disciplines, they end up becoming our religion. Now, Paul said self discipline is good. He, he went as far as to say that it is the better thing. Giving something up in order to focus upon God is a good thing. I need to make sure nobody misunderstands me. Spiritual disciplines, self-discipline, it's a good thing. But we have a tendency to take it too far. And we make a religion out of that self-discipline. We make a religion out of the very good spiritual disciplines. Well, I have to read my Bible every day because the pastor says I need to, or, or good Christians pray. And so I need to wake up early so that I can spend some extra time in prayer. Or if I'm going to be a really mature Christian, mature Christians fast. And so I need to give up something. I need to give up this meal or eating completely on this day every week. Or or I need to go on a 40-day fast. Because a successful Christian, a successful Christian takes control of their life. And forces themselves to do what they're supposed to do. And then echo the words of the ancient one once again. You cannot beat a river into submission. You have to surrender to its current and use its power as your own. For the record... I have nothing against fasting or prayer or reading your Bible. There is nothing wrong with any of these things. These are very good things. But oftentimes, we engage in these spiritual disciplines not out of love, but out of obligation. I have to do it. And then we struggle. Because we don't want to wake up early. We struggle against engaging in that spiritual discipline because, frankly, we hate doing it. We don't want to do it. And we resent the fact that that we have to read our Bibles or or take time to do that. And, And then we know that we should do it. And so we hate ourselves that we hate doing it. Paul said, if you think you're acting improperly, then get married. If faith and religion are dreary and burdensome, then you're doing it wrong. If you're trying to abstain from sex, if you're trying to read your Bible, if you're trying to to pray, or if you're trying to, to fast because, well, it's the right Christian thing to do, then you're doing it for the wrong reasons. Don't misunderstand me. I am not condoning sin. This area of sex. Paul said each man should have sexual relations with his own wife. Paul's not saying it. I'm not saying, well, if God's commands are too hard, then just throw them out the window and do whatever you want. That's not what's being said. there is a big difference there's a difference between oh, well, i can't do that because god says no or i have to do this because god says that i have to there's a difference between those and saying, well i don't want to do that because it's contrary to the heart of god or i desire to do these things because i know that they are pleasing to god this Scenario that Paul is advising against. Paul is telling the church not to do it. It's a a life in which the, the Christian is not living the abundant life described by Jesus. It's a life where... Where the christian strives day and night to discipline themselves through their sheer willpower to get everything right to live the perfect pristine life a life that has lost all joy again self-discipline is good the spiritual disciplines are good but as paul says If you can't do it, then don't. It's good to remain single. It's good to abstain from sex. But if you can't handle it, if the desires are too great for you, then by all means, get married. This is one area, especially, that God has given you an escape hatch. Use it. Self-discipline is a good thing. These spiritual disciplines, prayer, fasting, Bible reading, whatever it may be, those are all good things. And if your heart is there, if you desire to, to do these things, if you desire to abstain from sex, if you desire to, to pray, to read your Bible, to fast, if you desire these spiritual disciplines, if your heart is there and you want to do them, but your flesh is weak, And my recommendation to you would be take it slow. Follow the desire of your heart to please God, but do so with baby steps. Paul said to married couples, you can abstain from sex for a period of time and then come back together. Do you feel led to fast? Don't jump into a 40-day fast. Don't give up absolutely everything, but, but start small. Fast one meal. Fast one thing. I will only drink water. Whatever it may be, start small. Do you feel led to pray more? Don't commit to praying for a whole hour every day, but start small. Devote a few minutes. Be intentional about taking that time. And then as your joy increases, as you see the benefits As your heart is lightened and and you draw nearer to God, then strive for the greater disciplines. Enjoy the abundant life that God has for you. Because the life that Christ came to give us is a life of joy, not a life of agony. Christ came not to give us a religion, a list of rules that we have to follow. But he came to give us freedom. He he came to give us a relationship with him. Life in abundance so that we can live free. Not so that we can shackle ourselves down to to rules and and, and religious obligations. Jesus said, I have come so that they may have life and have it in abundance. And that is his plan for you and for me. A life in relationship with him. A life of joy, not a life of agony. Don't forsake that abundant life for rules and and." An oppressive religion. Don't sin. Don't go counter to the heart of God, but instead, may your love for Christ spur you on to faith and good deeds for His namesake. Pray with me, Heavenly Father. As people, we can can get wrapped up in the rules and regulations, the the rituals that that we have to perform in order to to carry this label of of Christian. God, we can come to the point where where we're so caught up in, in doing the right thing that we lose sight of the reason we're doing it to begin with. So, God, I pray that you give us wisdom and give us insight. God, I I pray that that you would speak to our hearts. That, God, we may may practice the spiritual disciplines, that we may have self-discipline and self-control without forsaking the abundant life that you came to give us. Go with us this week. God, open our hearts to receive all that you have. And and God, may our love for you compel us to follow your heart. Be with us, God, we pray in the holy name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you next week.